0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Junardhan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about ancient Indian philosophy of mind with Monima Chadha, who is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at Monash University. Hi, Monima. Thanks very much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We're going to be talking about ancient Indian philosophy of mind, and I think maybe the first thing we need to discuss is what terminology they use for the mind and related concepts. Is there a Sanskrit word that really just means exactly what we mean by the English word mind?
1: Um, Yes and no, as you would expect from a philosopher. So there is the term manas, which is translated as mind. But there are also other terms that are used in Indian philosophy, for example, chitta, for example, ahamkar, for example, the notion of buddhi, which are all mental faculties, if you like. So when we talk about uh, mind in Indian philosophy, We are talking about mental faculties, we are talking about conscious states. Sometimes they're also referred to as mind chitta, for example, um, in the Buddhist philosophy especially. So I think it's not an easy translation to say we have one term in Indian philosophy and an equivalent in Western philosophy. The other thing to keep in mind, I think when we are using the term mind, is in the Indian tradition, it is used as belonging to the category of not-self. So in the Indian tradition, the main divide is not between mind and body, rather it is between the self and the not-self. And what distinguishes these two categories, in my opinion at least, what is the most important distinguishing factor in these two categories is that the mind as you know, with other things belonging to the category of not-self, which is body, sense organs, and so on, they are all impermanent. Whereas the self is something which is permanent, even eternal from for some of the Vedic schools. So that's an important distinction to keep in mind. Whenever we are thinking about the mind, we have to think of it as an impermanent entity. It reminds me of one you know, nice question, Um, that is asked in the, it's in the mythological tradition, you know, what is swifter than the wind? And the answer is, mind is swifter than the wind. That's the answer given. But mind is not something, you know, we do not need to think of it. In Western philosophy, we often use the terms mind and self and person interchangeably. We shouldn't make that mistake when we are thinking about Indian philosophy, because it belongs to a different category altogether.
0: That really then sets up the concept of the self or the mind as a key debate in ancient India between the Buddhists on the one hand who deny the existence of a persisting self and the Vedic schools on the other who insist upon it. And I'm wondering if it's really safe to think about that as a debate about the mind, because in the Vedic tradition, we sometimes have a distinction between the mind and the self. So is that really a debate about the philosophy of mind?
1: Um, Here is how I like to think about it. The debate is about whether, you know, there is a self or not. That's how the debate is characterized. And you could think of it as a debate about the mind because what the Buddhists are going to say, in my opinion, what they are saying is the mind can do all the work of the self. And so we really don't need a self, and we'll get to the details of this argument later. But that's what I think is going on here: that they want to say we don't need a self because whatever the Hindu schools say that the self can do can be done by the mind.
0: And of course, they the Buddhists would deny that the mind persists over time as well, because actually they don't think that anything persists over over time.
1: Yes, and that's you know part of the. Challenges, you know, to be able to explain how something that is impermanent can explain phenomena like memory. And that's one of the reasons why the Hindus postulate a self. Otherwise, we don't have a good explanation of memory. And the Buddhist replies, no, we can account for memory and other mental functions and other, you know, so called proofs of self from the Hindu school. I think the Buddhist. At least tries to respond to each of those challenges by giving an explanation how mental faculties might do the same work and mental faculties, notice, are impermanent.
0: That is indeed one of the most prominent arguments for the persistence of the self that we find in the Vedic schools, for example, in Niyaya, they have this argument that I must be persisting over time because I can remember things that I experienced yesterday. And that does seem like a very powerful argument for the persistence of the self, doesn't it?
1: It does seem like a powerful argument. But uh, the question, I mean, there's, we need to be careful here. First, let me say this. The original argument in the Nyaya Sutras does not mention memory. It is only in the commentaries that memory comes into play. The original argument is just that we need an explanation of desire. Um, and what? how can we explain desire if we haven't had those experiences before? Therefore, there must be a persisting self. Uh, In the discussions, in the commentary, you do get a mention of memory. And I think in the commentaries, you get specifically the mention of what is called episodic memories, which is not just remembering facts about the past, but remembering episodes in the past. So, for example, I can remember that, you know, I was the one who was um, singing on my 40th birthday, that's a vivid memory I have. And that's the kind of memory I think that the Nyaya are really interested um, in explaining. That kind of memory cannot be explained without assuming a permanent self.
0: And is it really about remembering things that happened quite a while ago, or would they also apply this to a kind of ongoing memory? For example, I can remember that I've been talking to you now for several minutes, but it's not like I forgot about the fact that I was talking to you and then some time passed and then I thought, oh yeah, I used to be talking to her at that earlier time.
1: Um, I think it's an interesting question uh, when you put it that way. You know, how much time needs to have been passed before it can counter the memory? You know, because even when you say a whole sentence, you know, I need to remember the words to be able to respond to your question, right? Is that a memory? then yeah, I would think not. You know, They think sentence comprehension happens all at once. Um, but you know, there are other episodes say something that happened a few minutes ago, will that count as a memory or not? I think it should.
0: And they don't distinguish between what we might call short-term and long-term memory then when they're describing this kind of argument for the persistence of the self?
1: I don't think they do make that distinction
0: what about another argument that you find in the vedic tradition which is not about the persistence of the self over time but more about the unity of consciousness or maybe first person perspective on things at one time for example at the moment i'm talking to you so when you talk i hear your voice but i'm also seeing the room around me and you might think, well, there needs to be some kind of mental principle, maybe it's the mind, maybe it's the self, that would somehow gather together these impressions into a single kind of gestalt awareness.
1: Um, Yes. So there is certainly that idea in um, Buddhist philosophy. I mean, of course, the Nyaya and the Hindu schools will say that the only thing that can unite perceptions or unite experiences at a time is the self. The Buddhists will say, well, there is the mental faculty of what they call the eighth consciousness or the storehouse consciousness, as it's sometimes called, that can account for synchronic um, unity of uh, experiences. So why are experiences happening at the same time seem to be united? So there are certain mental principles, if you like, that can account for unity of experiences without postulating a self.
0: Actually, I think that that maybe really helps us put our finger on the difference between the mind and the self, because I suppose that the Vedic side of the debate is to say, well, the mind performs certain functions, but I also have, for example, sense perception. And so I need a self to gather together what's going on in my mind and what's going on in my sense perception together into one sort of unified consciousness. For example, I might remember what I was doing yesterday while looking at a painting, and it would be the self that unifies these, if I understand the argument correctly. Whereas the Buddhists say, no, you can get by with just whatever the mind does and whatever sense perception does, is that right?
1: Well, the Buddhist actually does not distinguish between sense perception and mind in the sense that you're talking about here. I think what the Buddhist does, thinks that um, the Buddhist thinks of various kinds of consciousnesses as all being various kinds of minds, okay? So the Buddhist doesn't have a notion of a mind as such, as one thing, you know, the mind itself is various kinds of conscious states. Uh, changing and causally, you know, connected over time. Um, so, if you think in this way, sense perception is one kind of conscious awareness. Self awareness is one kind of conscious awareness. Bodily awareness is another kind of conscious awareness. And all these series of conscious awarenesses, if you like, are, you know, are happening at the same time. And so they share the time frame and they share. Some other features, some other causal interactions between those things happening at the same time, and therefore, you know they they can do the work that the Hindus say you require a self for
0: and uh, I guess that that's a very different kind of critique of the standard Vedic account than we've just been talking about in the previous episodes where we talked about the charvaka position because the charvakas seem to accept that we have. At least a mind, and maybe even a self. Although, at least in the Charvaka Sutra, they don't talk. It doesn't talk about the self. It talks about um, mental phenomena, but not it avoids the word Atman. Um, but what the Buddhists are saying is very different from what the Charvakas are saying. Is that right?
1: Yes, I think the difference between the Buddhists and the Charvaks is. I mean, the Charvaks also talk about you know consciousness and as an emergent property of the material elements, the Buddhists are not materialists, the Buddhists have a distinction between mental atoms or mental um, elements and physical elements. So they talk about psychophysical complexes and they don't talk about reducing the mind to the body. But, you know, it's a different kind of critique because the mind in this context, as we said before, is not a permanent thing not a thing that continues to exist over time. Mind, in this context, if you like, is a series of conscious awarenesses and many multiple series of conscious awarenesses.
0: And in fact, their critique of the idea of something that persists would apply to the emergent Charvaka mind just as much as it would apply to, you know, Vedanta theories of self.
1: It would, because the Charvakas are not thinking of the material elements as some as things that don't persist. You know, the Charvaka, are thinking of material elements as things that persist over time, and sometimes they combine in various ways to give, you know, rise to this new property of consciousness as in the human body. So that's what the Charvakas are saying. Um, The debate between the Charvakas and the Hindus is not about, you know, whether there is persistence or not. That's a different debate. The debate between the Hindus and the Buddhists is whether we need to have persisting entities in our ontology to explain everything there is.
0: So this uh, argument that you get from the Buddhists um, that we don't need to postulate the self or the mind. I mean, so far, the way that you've described it sounds like um, almost like a kind of Occam's razor style argument. Maybe I'm thinking of that because I happen to be covering Occam (laughs) at the moment in the medieval episodes, which are appearing in parallel to this. But it sounds like the argument you're describing is of the form. We can explain these phenomena without postulating a mind or a self that endures over time so we shouldn't do it. Um, Is that really the way that they argue? In other words, that we don't need to posit the self, or do they actually also have arguments for why we shouldn't posit the self because it's actually an incoherent idea?
1: They have different kinds of arguments um, in different schools. I mean, like the Hindu schools, you have many traditions in the Buddhist side as well. And the particular argument that I'm talking about here. I've talked about is, you know, to do with the idea of um, whether you need to posit a self to explain the phenomena. So that argument, I think, belongs to the Abhidharma school, and Vasubandhu tries out that argument by saying, you know, for the Abhidharma, anything that is real, or the criterion of reality, if you like, is that to be is to be causally efficacious. And his claim is that the self is causally inefficacious. Therefore, there is no self. There's nothing for the self to do. Other schools have a different kind of argument. So another kind of argument that you find in the Buddhist schools is that, you know, if you postulate the self, it will make you unhappy because with self comes self-interest. So, you know, we do not... You know, this is not doing any work. In fact, it's an illusion which causes us a lot of misery. So we need to get rid of this illusion. That's a different kind of argument that you get in the Buddhist schools as well. There's the incoherence argument um, as well in the Buddhist tradition. But again, there's different philosophers, different schools arguing why we should not accept the self. All of them are trying to interpret the Buddhist dialogues and give you different arguments as their interpretation of what the Buddha had in mind in the denial of self.
0: Yeah, I think especially that second kind of argument you mentioned is, 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 in a way, is a kind of strange arguments, Because, I mean, here we've been talking about philosophy of mind, which is usually considered to be a very abstract theoretical branch of the history of philosophy, and then they come along and say, well, here's why you shouldn't believe in the mind, it will make you unhappy. <laughs> this is a sort of not the kind of argument you get in contemporary philosophy of mind, for sure.
1: I don't know why you say, um, here's why you shouldn't believe in the mind. They say, here's why you shouldn't believe in the self. And, you know, if I may reiterate myself, here's why you should not believe in persisting things, because that will make happy but mind is not a persisting thing for them you know mind in so far as it is thought of as mental awareness it's something which you know exists only momentarily and then goes out of existence giving rise to another conscious state
0: right okay i mean the the also i think the first argument you mentioned there from vasubandhu is a good example of how to turn an occam's razor style argument into a a more uh, kind of aggressive argument which actually shows that something doesn't exist because what you say is well we don't need this for any kind of theoretical reason and there's a reason we shouldn't posit things that we don't need is not just to kind of be more economical in our theories it's because um, what it means to exist is to be causally efficacious or something like that and so you, you sort of bootstrap from the occam's razor style argument to an argument against the existence of the self
1: Yes, and I think, you know, aggression is a feature on both sides of the debate. The Hindus are no better when they're debating with the uh, Buddhists. I remember one, you know, an exchange we were having in the philosophy East and West, and one of the Buddhist philosophers who did not agree with my view, you know, was making points, but the Nyaya philosopher who did agree, Stephen Phillips, who's a um, professor in Texas, said, Chatta might not be right, but against the Buddhists, everything is fair.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, long-running strategic <laughs> observation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess that it's, it, I mean, it seems to me that uh, it's pretty clear how the Buddhists will explain one of the phenomena we mentioned before, which is this thing about memory, because in a way that just falls under their general account of how we can explain the apparent persistence of objects over time, right? They just appeal to causal connections between sort of fleeting um, momentary phenomena. I personally find it harder to see how they can answer the other phenomenon we mentioned, which is this thing about the unity of consciousness. So just to reiterate there, the idea was that we need a self because without a self, there's no sort of center of awareness or consciousness that can direct its attention to all the different kinds of cognitions that are going on for me at any one moment, never mind what happens from one moment to the next. How can the Buddhists explain that?
1: I think they can. And let me try and explain this. So I mentioned that the Buddhist, um, again, let me clarify, I'm talking about the Abhidharma Buddhist school. Uh, because that's the school I'm most familiar with. This was a tradition in northern India, and I'm talking about the philosopher Vasubandhu in that tradition. And they introduced, later Vasubandhu introduces this notion of storehouse consciousness, or in fact he gets it from the Yogachara school in the Abhidharma tradition. And what the storehouse consciousness does is it kind of acts as a base. It interacts with all the other sensory consciousnesses. So what they say is there is a two-way interaction happening between the sensory consciousnesses, so you know the eye consciousness, the olfactory consciousness, the taste consciousness, if you like, and the uh, storehouse consciousness, in the sense that the storehouse consciousness... Uh, behaves like a base which, which you know, helps the other consciousnesses and in turn those consciousnesses, so whatever objects they have, they feed that back into the base. So there is a two-way interaction happening. So all the sensory consciousnesses share this common base, if you like. But this base is not a persisting thing. It's also, you know, a changing consciousness like every other consciousness
0: so it's almost like the buddhists would say i mean just taking vasubandhu as an example but i guess it would be a more general buddhist approach would be to say what you can do with your kind of transcendent single self that's overseeing everything we can do by appealing to the interrelationship between different components of the momentary um, person if we're willing to use the word person is that basically the idea
1: yes that's exactly right
0: and um, speaking of the idea of a person, um, I mean, as you've said, they, they do accept mind in the sense of a momentary kind of uh, cognition. And is that, is that, so just taking Vasubandhu as an example, um, something you've written about is that this momentary mind is really what does the work of a self or a person. So would Vasubandhu say that, that I am my mind or would he not be happy with that kind of formulation?
1: I don't think the Buddhists would be happy with that kind of formulation because the Buddhists don't like this notion of I. They, you know, clearly want to say that the I is a fiction. It's, it's an idea that we impose on what is really real and this idea, this imposition, this conceptual imposition causes a lot of suffering because with I comes me and mine and the notion of ego, you know, my self-interest and so on.
0: So it's really a kind of um, you might say a kind of reductionist or eliminativist account. Then is that right? Because yes. I mean, I mean, one. So for, to go back to Chādvaka again, they think that somehow mental life emerges from the elements, but they don't say, well, therefore mental life is unreal. Um, they're happy to say that it's real and it, it's a real phenomenon that really emerges from the elements. Um, whereas the Buddhists really want us to abandon all all thought of the self, of the I. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, I think that's right. They want us to abandon all um, thought of the I because they think it's going to bring you pain and nothing more.
0: Uh, And uh, finally, just in conclusion, how do you see all of this uh, contributing to the contemporary debates in philosophy of mind? I mean, obviously, some of the issues and concerns we've discussed, for example, this desire to be liberated from suffering, I don't remember ever going to a talk by a contemporary philosopher of mind and having the philosopher of mind start talking about liberation from suffering. Um, So that seems like at least a different kind of motivation. But do you think that there is a contribution from these ancient debates um, that could help us um, maybe reframe the contemporary discussion or in some other way contribute to it?
1: I think so. I think. And that is what, you know, is Basically, my interest in studying Buddhist philosophy. So, here's an idea. You said, you know, they're not concerned with liberation. Surely they're not concerned with liberation, but they're concerned with the notion of moral responsibility. They're concerned, and with moral responsibility comes the idea of an agent of action. In the Buddhist way of thinking about things, if you give up on the notion of persons or self, you also give up on the notion of an agent of action. And the Buddhists are quite happy to say that. You know, what is the work? Um, Let me, you know, let me sort of give you a detailed argument from Basubandhu's text, which explains that we don't need a self. Says, you know, suppose there is, you know, you see a mango, what happens? There's a sense perception of a mango, a desire for mango arises that, you know, causes... Um, you form an intention to get that mango that causes certain bodily actions to happen and you procure the mango and you satisfy the desire. Where is the agent in all this? You know, there's an interaction between mental and physical states and that explains the action. Why do we need an agent? So for them, you know, moral responsibility, which is certainly something you know, the philosophers of mind are interested in they're interested in the notion of moral responsibility, they're interested in the notion of agency. And uh, there's huge discussions about um, you know, the sense of agency. The Buddhist just says the sense of agency, or at least let me say, more carefully, some Buddhists want to say that the sense of agency is also an illusion and there is nothing that we need to account for. Um, there is responsibility that can be taken care of by the causal relations, but we don't need to posit these agents you know, which are the bearers of moral responsibility?
0: Yeah, actually, g- given that um, so much of contemporary philosophy of mind does tend in uh, in the limitivist or you know at least a kind of supervenience theory uh, kind of direction, um, th- you know, there there seems to be a lot of interest in how far we can get away from these traditional, more Cartesian ideas about the self or the mind. Can we reduce it to something purely material and so on? And so in a way, um, even if the Buddhists came from a very different kind of original set of motivations, their drive to eliminate apparent mental phenomena in some ways actually fits into the contemporary debate very nicely.
1: I think so. I think so. And I think there are other contributions they can make. You know, one is the idea of um, the... There isn't, you know, for the Buddhist, I think, if you think carefully, there's not just the conscious state and the unconscious states. There is, you know, degrees of conscious awareness. There's levels of consciousness. And I think that's an idea that contemporary philosophy, you know, contemporary philosophy of mind and even the sciences of the mind can do with um, Uh, looking at more carefully, you know, what are the degrees of conscious awareness rather just saying, you know, you are either conscious or unconscious. So, for example, right now, one is conscious of, um, you know, one's body, not directly conscious of, but the moment I mention it, you know, I suddenly, it comes into my awareness and it probably has come into yours as well. Um, so that's the kind of um, that's another idea. I mean, and I think it's not only the Buddhists who can make contributions here. I think even in the Hindu tradition and the Vedic tradition, you know, there is a very fine-grained taxonomy of conscious states, dream states, deep dreamless sleep. What happens to consciousness in deep dreamless sleep? And that's ideas that are coming into uh, contemporary philosophy and um, sciences of the mind. They're dealing with these ideas. What do we say about deep dreamless sleep? What do we say about dreams? What do we, um, you know, is there consciousness or not? And there is evidence to say there is degrees of consciousness there. So I think, you know, there are a whole lot of ideas that can inform current debates. So it's not just an interest in the history of philosophy. Um, I think there is, my pretension to make contribution to the contemporary debates.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much. That certainly wets our appetite for the forthcoming episodes on Buddhist philosophy, which will in fact be starting very soon. First we're going to uh, actually change tack a little bit because before we start talking about the Buddhists and the Jains, we're going to be taking a look next time at ancient theories of aesthetics in drama, poetry, and music. So that will be the topic of the next episode. Uh, but for now, I would like to thank Moni Machada very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And please join me and Janardhan next time as we move on to looking at ancient Indian aesthetics here on The History of Philosophy in India.